Welcome to the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Laura Tara Davy Joplin. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, spiritual social media strategist, and integrative counselor, working to integrate the principles of the spiritual path into every aspect of my work and my life. This podcast is an extension of that work as I navigate the world as a white woman devotee of yoga, living at many intersections of privilege, living in the West, and trying to live with awareness. Thank you for joining me in this work. You're listening to episode 57, We Get To. Hello and welcome to this week's awareness offering. Happy to be here with you, especially after a short hiatus last week. I appreciate your your patience as I left a little bit of space for just a massively busy equinox week, both you know around the equinox, lots of rituals and workshops, but seemingly everything else too. So much happened last week. Um, so I'm 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 grateful for the space and really glad to be back and sharing a full format episode with you. And before I get into that, as always, if you'd like to support this show, best ways to do so are by rating, subscribing, and or leaving a review. I don't know if is subscribing correct. Yeah, you can subscribe to a podcast, I think. <laughs> uh, but either way, rating, subscribing, leaving a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. And if you feel called to share about the podcast by word of mouth or social, all of those things just help other people find the show. Very appreciative and the most appreciative as always just to be here and to have you listening. So thank you again. And we'll go in to our opening practice, opening the space of this episode with our ritual of singing the sound of Om. Om is the sound that contains all other sounds, sound of the universe. And so it's almost like we're asking to widen the lens a little bit, to go someplace beyond the moment-to-moment wildness of the mind and even the world and, and take a deeper, kind of more real perspective on whatever we will share in this space. And you can do that by singing Om out loud with me. You can do it by just listening as a practice. If you're coming along, you might get your body into a comfortable position and you might choose to close your eyes or just take a soft gaze, turning toward yourself in some way, turning that lens of depth and consciousness toward yourself. You might take a breath in through your nose if that is available to you right now. And we'll let that breath go, just clearing some space. And then we'll take an inhale for the sound of OM. Thank you for joining me in that practice. And now for this week's discussion. I sit here on the week of September 28th, 2022, really just the final week of September. I'm recording this a little earlier in the week than I normally would, but it's the final week of September in 2022. And I feel aware, as I have been feeling aware for at least a week now, that we get to do this. We get to practice. Whether it's you know practicing 
self-awareness, self-inquiry, whether it's practicing meditation, some of the things that we practice specifically on this podcast or practicing like yoga asana, physical yoga practices, which is something I do and you might do, Um, whether it's practicing like journaling or ritual or you know, sacred music or community service. I'm listing these things because they're all different ways that I understand the different limbs and forms of yoga practice because there are many. But whatever way that you practice or that we practice, I feel so aware that we get to practice. We get to set aside intentional time in our lives, whatever, however you know, frequently we might do it, however long it might last, whatever kind of practice it might be, we get to set aside this time to connect with ourselves, to dive deeply into our minds, hearts, to connect different parts of our being together, to connect with the sacred, and to try to grow spiritually and to transform in the name of consciousness. We get to do this. It is a privilege to practice and one that not everyone has access to. And that has been true forever, right? For a very long time. I'm not sitting here trying to act like I'm saying anything new or revolutionary or that this is a new phenomenon. It's a tale as old as time. I just feel hyper aware of it right now, given the circumstances in the world that we get to practice. We get to kind of change our perspective on our moment with the intention, hopefully, of kind of shifting collective vision. Because I've been taught that practice always has to be about embodiment, not just going deeply inward to ourselves and seeing ourselves fully and in a certain you know, light, um, you know, understanding ourselves deeply, although those things are very important, but it has to then extend into the way we move through the world, how we live our lives, which then has the intention of impacting, you know, the people in our immediate orbit, because the way we interact with them will change. And then maybe the way that they move through the world could shift. And then maybe the way that their immediate circle moves through the world could shift. And then maybe there might be a shift in the collective. But I've always been taught that it has to be about the embodied impact in the world, as well as the immediate internal impact of the practice. But that's a privilege. And I feel more aware than ever of how needed the collective impact of spiritual practice is. And yet it is a luxury to get to set aside this time to do this. I feel aware that as I sit here speaking to you, there are, there is revolution. There's, there, there's no other word for it. Um, there's, there's revolution happening in Iran. Um, what began as the death of a woman, Masa Amini, who was killed by morality police in Iran for either not wearing her hijab or wearing it incorrectly. I'm unclear. I've seen both, but she was killed in police custody. And that sparked protests across the country, demonstrations for women's rights in Iran. Um, Many women, not all, but many women in Iran feel as if wearing the headscarf as um, kind of the Islamic Republic um, system dictates that they do. They they feel that that's something that's been forced upon them. And so women began to protest um, these laws by you know, burning hijabs, burning headscarves in public, cutting off their own hair. And that has 
expanded even further from protests just about women's rights to protests of the entire Islamic Republic um, system of governance and protests for, for human rights in Iran. I feel aware that I'm sitting and speaking to you in the context of that happening. And I want to say, kind of right off the bat, I am not the person to listen to uh, if you want, or, or really just in general, I'm not, my voice is not the one to be elevated in this particular instance. I want to use my platform to uplift the fact that this is happening, especially given that the people of Iran, as they actively fight for their freedom, have said explicitly you know, their internet is being cut off. They're, they're being cut off from the world because the Islamic Republic government would like to suppress the fact that this is happening. And if the world continues to understand what's been going on over there, what's been done to the people of Iran and the unrest that has resulted, that's, that's very disconcerting for them. And so the Iranian people have explicitly asked that folks in the, around the world really be, be a voice to elevate this, this situation. So I wanted to do that on this platform, but I feel aware at the same time, I'm, I'm not the person, um, I'm not the voice to be elevated because one, I do not have the lived experience. I, I am not indigenous to Iranian culture and I don't have a full and complete knowledge of the situation. So I want to name that explicitly, but I still feel committed to elevating this, this um, or to to using this moment in time on the, whatever platform I might have on this podcast um, to to shine my light as best I can on this scenario, and um, with that in my own research, my understanding is that one Masamini was killed for either not wearing her hijab and or wearing it incorrectly, and that became widespread protests and and um a fight for women's rights which has now developed into widespread fight for essentially complete liberation the iranian people from what i understand would like total regime change um however they would like to liberate themselves and that feels really important they are not asking for any kind of intervention especially western intervention we in the west have a history of intervening and usually destabilizing other people's countries. Um, there is an element of saviorism there. There is a strong, strong element of colonization there, which has caused a untold harm for hundreds of thousands of years. And so they are not asking for intervention. They are asking for an upliftment of their cause as they work to liberate themselves because they would like to liberate themselves from the rule of the Islamic Republic government. And from my own just high-level research, and I, I want to name over and over, uh, one, I will likely misspeak. Um, I do not have a full understanding or a lived understanding of this history. Um, I This is the first time, full transparency, that I've sat down to really engage with it deeply, and that is a shortcoming on my part. But um, as I learn about it now, my understanding is that before 1979, the, uh, the existing government, the Shah of Iran, um, was imperfect and at the same time was working to modernize, quote-unquote, westernize, quote-unquote, um, the, the country and the culture of Iran as much as possible. Um, there was a lot of cultural freedom in the early 70s, and I believe beforehand women were encouraged to go to school, to have jobs, um, women and men... Um, mixed and interacted uh, socially quite frequently. 
um, there was a lot of social free, but freedom, but at the same time, um, this Shah still did have an authoritarian bent. He still leaned toward authoritarianism. So there were issues, but there was a lot of cultural freedom. And eventually there was revolution. There was the, there was a 1979 revolution in Iran. And from my understanding, based on firsthand um, shares from people who are either Iranian or um, are culturally from, from the Swana region, which stands for Southwest Asian North African region. And it does, it encompasses the Middle East. Um, so people from that region, whether Iran or from that general region, um, from what they have said, my understanding is that this revolution was sort of co-opted by the Islamic Republic and specifically by a leader named Ayatollah Khomeini. I could be mispronouncing that and I apologize if I have, but either way, the understanding is that this, this movement was co-opted um, by the Islamic Republic and turned into a, um, a revolution for a fully religious state um, that, that um, Iran was um, then you know, transformed into um, the Islamic, or, or the government of Iran was transformed into the Islamic Republic and Iran was positioned as a religious state, as essentially a theocracy with Islam um, at the forefront. And I want to first or again, or continue to name that this is an incredibly complex and layered issue. And uh, this is not meant to be a commentary on Islam at all. Um, I am an interfaith practitioner and I, I will always uh, believe in and strive for, you know, the, the freedom of all people to safely practice their faith. Um, but from the, my understanding from folks that have Iranian lineages and are from the Swana region, uh, the, Iran is not an Islamic nation. There is a, a, an, a religion, a faith system, one of the oldest organized in the world um, that is indigenous to the Persian region, to what was Persia, to what is, um, to, in modern day Iran is included in that region. Um, but the, the indigenous religion and faith system of that region was Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. And so Isra uh, Iran was never an Islamic nation. Um, so this 1979 revolution was co-opted by the Islamic Republic uh, and Iran was then kind of um, solidified, for lack of a better word, as a theocracy, as a fully religious state. And so a lot of the people of Iran feel that the, the customs of the Islamic Republic, customs being probably the wrong word, the, um, the expectations, the, I don't have the right word, but the... Um, the structure of the Islamic Republic government has been imposed upon them, not something that they chose. Um, so the the strict gender inequality, um, the the rules around women covering themselves, this is not something that most Iranian people and people of that region say they chose. So they feel that it has been imposed upon them, and that has partially led us to where we are today, that the the killing of a woman for not uh, conforming to the rules of the Islamic Republic sparked women's rights protest, which very easily um, ignited into human rights protests because the people of Iran feel as if this, this 
repressive and oppressive system of governance of theocracy has been thrust upon them and they want regime change. They want to liberate themselves. So that is my incomplete, imperfect understanding of part of why we are where we are today. But my full understanding, at least, is that we are sitting here, you know, speaking. I'm speaking to you on this podcast in the midst of of revolution. There are people fighting and there are people quite literally dying for the liberation of their people. From what I have seen this morning, the death toll is up to 40 because protesters are being killed for... Uh, for speaking out and for demonstrating and for working toward liberation. So there's a death toll for this. And that's the reality. That is the, the reality. That is the moment we are living in right now. You know, I've said that this podcast is, is for the moments we're living in. And that is my understanding of the historical moment that we are living in right now. And of course, many folks have made this connection and I... This is my understanding. Um, this connection feels real to me as well, that this is a fight for, for liberation everywhere. You know, Dr. King said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this, this fight that began as a, a movement for women's liberation and has now um, brought into a full human rights revolution, which of course women's rights are human rights, um, it's deeply connected to the threat to women's rights and human rights everywhere. We here in the United States are not immune to this, right? We have our, are having our human rights threatened in a number of ways. Um, women and people who can become pregnant are, are being direct, are having our rights directly assaulted and have been for several years, several years, but it has come to a head this year with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, and so a right to self-determination uh, for women, for marginalized people, for all people um, is under threat everywhere. And w- one, I want to name that I, I've been struck by the awareness of the fact that Iran was um, in a lot of ways modernized and culturally free before this revolution in 1979. And I want to name that there are problems, there are issues with this idea that a country must be quote-unquote westernized in order to be modern or to be advanced or to be free. So that is not an uncomplicated notion. But I feel aware that there was this sense of cultural freedom before 1979, and then the pendulum swung so wildly toward repression and oppression and harm and violence. And I name that because it's so easy when we have an American exceptionalist mindset and a, an American centrist mindset, American exceptionalism being the idea that America is the greatest country in the world and that we are somehow exceptional and, you know, immune from the issues of, of other places and that we somehow have to be the, um, like in some hierarchy, we are at the top for, for, um, reasons and that we are always an example to the rest of the world if we take that mindset it's easy to which a lot of people do um and it's understandable because we were taught from an early age um that america was the exception and um it only became more intense after 9-11 happened and that's a whole other conversation but it's really easy with that mindset to see this this revolution in iran as very far away but it's not right it among many other things, this is not the point of what's happening in Iran. The point is the liberation of, of the people of Iran. But among other things, what it 
demonstrates is the fact that the pendulum can swing at any time. There can be cultural freedom and then there can be oppression before we know it. So this is not separate from us. And the, the issue of self-determination is one that affects us all. It's directly affecting us in the U.S. Uh, if you're here like I am in its own ways. Um, and I, I feel as the... As the, the demonstrations in Iran spread and continue and intensify, because they are, the people of Iran are not letting up and they are bravely um, continuing to, to stand up in a number of ways. Um, but as they continue, although it's, it's really painful, um, the loss of life and the, the, the loss of liberty that has led us to this point, I feel watching the fire, watching the internal fire of the people of Iran expand and ignite does give me a sense of hope because if the injustices being perpetuated and fought against in Iran are connected, very much connected to the injustices and the realities that we all face, then the liberation that the people of Iran are working toward, and I believe they will achieve, if that, li that liberation is also connected to our liberation, more freedom for the people of Iran means more freedom for all of us. Um, and so I say all of this with this understanding that, you know, I offer a, a guided meditation and yoga philosophy podcast here, and I teach six yoga meditation classes a week, and I go on social media, and I write about yoga and mysticism and spirituality and consciousness and, you know, personal growth with the hope of collective growth and transformation, although, you know... Um, it takes a lot more than just meditating to achieve collective liberation as we're seeing so viscerally and so powerfully in Iran. But I feel aware that I'm doing all of this and it's a privilege. I get to. I get to sit here and have the time and space to talk about yoga and meditation, to practice yoga and meditation. Um, it's a privilege. I get to do it and we get to do it. And I, like I said, I've always been taught that the purpose of the practice must be for embodiment in the world and for transformation on a collective scale. But in the midst of a moment like this, that responsibility feels so much more acute. The fact that I get to do this, we get to do this, we get to sit here and practice and work toward our own transformation and engage with the sacred. And the responsibility grows more and more immense that we must be doing it. We must be doing it for the purpose of collective liberation. We must, becoming, we must be becoming more aware in the present moment so that we can become more aware of what's happening in the world. We must be working toward our own liberation from the patterns that keep us from, from understanding our sacred nature so that we can contribute to the cause of liberation for the world. It is so necessary. And if we get to practice, if we get to have the time and space and freedom to do spiritual practices, we sure as fuck better be using them for the purposes of collective awareness and liberation. There is no other choice. And again, this is not a new thing. The last several years have shown us so viscerally over and over that there is no other choice but to, if we're going to be doing practice, if we're going to be, 
you know, working with the mystical and the spiritual, we have to be doing it for the purposes of collective liberation. And this is just yet another instance, one that feels visceral and powerful and big, but yet another instance that has demonstrated this fact that we must be working for collective liberation. It is not, you know, it's not about, you know, feeling, feeling bliss and feeling, you know, it's, it's, it's not about, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this and continue to have, you know, compassion and awareness and openness around all things, but it's not about, you know, just feeling powerful as individuals or blissful as individuals. It's not about, you know, just our gut health or, you know, how beautiful our bodies are. It has nothing to do with our individual experience. And yet it has everything to do with our individual experience because that matters, but that is not the point. The point is to get fucking free. Om Namah Shivaya is one of the primordial, fundamental, central mantras of the yoga tradition. It's a liberation mantra. Shiva who is a figure in the Hindu pantheon and Hinduism has had a profound influence on yoga because they grew up together. He is known as the liberator. Or excuse me, no, he's not. Um, He might be, but that's not what I was trying to say and it's not what I've heard, but he very much might be and he kind of is, but he's known as the, um, the destroyer, the creator and the destroyer. He is a mythical being Uh, You can think of this as an actual mythical being or a form of energy or an archetype to understand sacred energy better either way. But his sacred energy represents this idea that he created the universe, that his dance, his movement, his yoga practice, if you will, danced the universe into motion. And he has the power to destroy worlds. If If his foot that is depicted as perpetually off the ground in this cosmic dance of mystical creation, if it ever touches the ground, the world ceases. He is the destroyer and the creator. And... His, one of his sort of representations, what he represents is the fact that by doing the dance of creation and destruction, by engaging consciously in our own transformation in this mystical dance, eventually we liberate ourselves from the cycle of creation and destruction, of life, death, and suffering. And we get to just be the oneness. We remember our sacred nature, just as Shiva is sacred. We remember that we are just the oneness. We are the cosmos. We are the universe that holds it all. Or however you might want to sort of think about your your oneness or your spirituality. Um, But he is, he is, or he represents liberation. And so this mantra of Om Namah Shivaya, when we sing it or say it, it's an ask for liberation. Liberate me from the patterns that keep me tied to the cycles of life, death, and suffering, to constant creation and destruction, and let me find oneness, let me find wholeness. Yoga, that's what yoga means. And of course, it's an ask that if I'm going to be liberated from my cycles, that the world be liberated from its cycles of creation and destruction so we can remember oneness. Om Namah Shivaya is a liberation mantra. And I share that because it it becomes all too clear that yoga is a liberation practice. 
the point, if you will, of practice. And I say this as someone who the practice is is borrowed for me in a lot of ways. I am not indigenous to yoga, so I'm actually not the authority to be saying what the practice is. But my understanding of what the practice, the point of the practice is, is to liberate. It's to liberate. So we get to practice. We get to do these mystical practices. But the people of Iran fighting for their own liberation, that's deep fucking yoga. Because liberation is the point. So we get to practice. Let us practice with an orientation toward liberation. This is the point in the Awareness Offerings podcast where we move from discussion into embodied practice. We sit for some meditation, for some consciousness practice. Uh, So if you're not in a position where you're able to do that, you might want to pause the podcast and return when you are. If you are in a position to do that, first thing I'll invite is that you find your way into a comfortable seated position. That is any seat at all. You can be, you know, sitting down on the ground, although I would say sit on something to lift your hips off the ground, like a cushion or a pillow, blanket, towel. You could be sitting with your legs crossed in sort of a classical meditation position, but you could be doing neither of those things. You know, your legs might be outstretched or knees might be bent. You could be sitting on your heels. You could be sitting on a chair or on a bed or with your back against the wall. As long as you can lengthen your spine, the central channel of energy in your body, you're good. That's all we're asking of ourselves is that we allow our energy to move freely, right? So that we can find internal liberation and then we understand what liberation feels like and maybe we can contribute to collective liberation. So you find your comfortable seat. You might choose to settle in there by closing your eyes, although you never have to. Your freedom means you get to support yourself however you need to. So that could mean you just take a soft gaze. You could look down the tip of your nose or toward the floor. And here, as we settle into a seat of practice, we might settle into the practice of breath awareness. Breath awareness as a center point and a place to land which means we don't have to do anything with the breath. We don't have to change it at all. Instead, we just witness. Like you would watch the sunrise or the ocean. You watch the fact that your breath is coming in. You notice how it feels, how it sounds, how it moves in your body. And you watch it go out. And you invite your mind, your body, and your focus to land in one place. Centering and arriving. And today's practice is relatively simple. We're going to use the liberation mantra. We're going to sing Om Namah Shivaya to, again, just kind of create a blueprint for what liberation feels like to us internally so that maybe we can move in the world in a way that is liberatory and contribute to the, to the cause, to the force of collective liberation. So Om Namah Shivaya is 
it means a lot of things, right? One of my teachers would say that it's, you know, make me aware of what I don't know yet or free my heart. And both of those things are liberation asks, right? Because when we, when, when what we no longer, or what's a better way of saying it? When what we did not yet know is revealed to us, we then have awareness to, to be different, to move differently and to free ourselves from the unconscious patterns that were keeping us stuck. And same with free my heart. That one's pretty straightforward. Like open my heart so I can be more free and help others get more free. So what we're saying is again, liberate me from those constant cycles of creation, destruction, life, death, rebirth, suffering, so that I can be oneness for myself, for others, and for the world. And you can decide how you want to say that and what intentions you want to put into that. And you can choose to sing Om Namah Shivaya out loud with me. We're going to sing it 11 times as practice, or you can choose to listen as practice. You might bring your palms to touch and thumbs to the center of your chest. This is pranam, a heart-centering gesture, and ask that this ask for liberation comes from the heart. Although you could also choose any kind of centering gesture that feels reverent and heart-opening to you, or choose to rest your hands in any way that's comfortable. We might take a breath in through the nose here if it's accessible. Release that breath, clear some space. We'll inhale to begin our mantra practice. Om Namah Shivaya Om Namah Shivaya And 
as the sound fades into some silence, some quiet, you might go with it. Settling into some internal quiet, maybe back to awareness of your breath. Awareness of whatever you feel and are experiencing here. I've been taught that mantra is always a call and response. We are calling out to something, to some form of the sacred when we sing it or express it. And then there's always a response, whether we know it or not. So you almost listen for the response as you, you know, orient yourself toward liberation through this practice. Just receiving its effects for a moment. And the why behind 11 repetitions here. My teacher, Swami Jayadevi, my spiritual teacher here in Atlanta, has taught that it's just like one more. It's one more than 10. We think of 10 as this number of completion. Um, but we do one more. It's like stretching a little bit further than we thought we were going to go. Just putting a little more into it. It's one more. your palms aren't yet at heart center you might take them there or bring them back there just sealing this ask for liberation at your heart you might take a breath in from that place release the breath as you're ready you can release your hands begin to blink your eyes open and return to the external a bit but i'll invite you to keep awareness of your internal experience you don't lose the effects of your practice. You begin to embody them, which is how we begin to take individual liberation to collective liberation. And of course, I want to dedicate this practice, this energy, this space that we've shared to the women of Iran and the people of Iran fighting for their liberation. May it be so. Swaha in Sanskrit means may it be so. And I'll invite you to dedicate the energy of your practice and what we've shared here to whatever cause whatever force of liberation you feel connected to whatever place you want to see liberation in the world thank you for joining me for this awareness offering and for going into embodied practice with me you can find me on social media at laura tara l-a-u-r-a-t-a-r-a on instagram facebook and youtube my intro and outro music was created by none other than my very own brother, Oxella Sun, O-X-E-L-A-S-U-N, whom you can also find on Instagram. <laughs>